Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Really don't listen. Good morning and welcome to those of you tuning into this special royal event hosted by the Really 007 podcast. You join us live from the chapel of St. Cyril's Monastery in Greece as the congregation continue to filter in. Eventually we will welcome King Charles and Camilla for this special nine lessons and carol service. But while we wait, let me tell you who's already arrived. Trina Parks is towards the back on this near side and is next to Caroline Monroe. The Mayor twins are beside them. Julie T. Wallace and Thomas Wheatley have found themselves reunited with Mariam Davo, making up a collection of Bond alumni from the Living Daylights. And, in fact, Andreas Wisniewski has also joined them. It's worth pointing out that, due to the remote location, all guests have been brought up in the rope basket, which has meant arrivals have been in small groups today. Many of the guests, of course, appeared on the Really 007 podcast. Case in point, Del Singh, the turban expert, is there actually sitting beside Robert Darvey. It's also lovely to see Norman Wanstall sitting towards the front person responsible for the sound in the first few Bond films, and he, of course, received the Oscar for Goldfinger. John Marino and Lynn Holly Johnson, looking engrossed in conversation, seemingly they're studying the programme of today's service. In fact, uh, Grace Jones has taken her seat just in front of the Mayor Twins, seems to have caused a bit of a stir, actually, and the Mayor Twins don't seem happy. Perhaps it's because she's not been a guest on really Dollar 7 yet, no. 
Oh, in fact, no. They seem to be gesturing that her tall hairstyle will obscure their view. <laughs> it's awkward there. Meanwhile, Marguerite Lawars has come in with Luciana Paluzzi. Goods Otto was he was sitting by himself, but he's just been joined by Russell Harden III. It actually looks as though the Mayer twins are being shown to new seats now. <laughs> After their little altercation with Grace Jones, well, this time they're behind Philip Dewhurst, the founder of the 007GB fan club, and they, they seem just as unhappy. Here's, yeah, as their view is still obscured by a tall hairstyle. Anyway, <laughs> on to guests tonight who haven't appeared on the Really 007 podcast yet. There was a touching moment uh, about ten minutes ago when John Cleese ushered Denise Richards through the big heavy doors of the monastery. Toby Stevens and Rick Yoon arrived together, and now sitting separately actually. Uh, Charlie Hickson, who did recently appear on the Really 007 show, has taken his place alongside fellow Bond authors, making up a full row, actually, of the Gardner, the Fox, the Hickson, the Benson, uh, and the Brosnan, yes. Apologies for not realising sooner, but that is the ever-so-charming Pierce Brosnan on the third row. And he's joined by Timothy Dalton and George Lazenby, what a picture. The service is due to start in about five minutes, and we're still to welcome King Giles, of course, and Camilla. Stephen Burkoff and uh, Christopher Walken there, they've just turned with their fingers raised to their lips, gesturing towards uh, Purvis and Wade behind them, yeah. Now, oh, in fact, this could be the royal entrance now. Oh, in, in fact, it's not a... But it's just as wonderful as we're now seeing John Glenn into the chapel. The snow has picked up outside, and the journey up in the rope basket makes it rather a treacherous way to enter, but Glenn is here with his wife, and also wiping snow off their coats of Britt Eklund and Grandel Bush. John Glenn has been he's been on the show and in the past few years it's been wonderful to see him gain more appreciation amongst the fans just watching him take his place now he's, he's taken his place next to Kerry Fukunaga and uh, Mark Forster there although he's been very quick to embrace Martin Campbell on the row behind how lovely Uh, yeah, David Arnold, uh, he's just chatting to... Oh, oh, and here here we have the royal entrance. The doors have flung open. The congregation have turned around. It... Oh, it's, it's my mistake again. This time it's Daniel Craig, uh, the last actor to play James Bond. And he has producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson on his arm. Craig there wearing rather unique, fashionable clothes. Perhaps that's linked to his to his recent liberation from the role of 007. Anyway, he's taken his place on the front row there with, with Broccoli and Wilson. Ah, 
Ah, yes. We now hear the royal trumpet. And there can be no doubt that this is the entrance of His Majesty the King. Here comes King Charles and Queen Camilla down the aisle, smiling, waving. Just winked and made a handgun shooting gesture towards Sean Bean on the right hand side, which produced a lovely moment of laughter. Oh, and he's just exchanging quite an awkward look with Charlie Higson, though. That was perhaps to be expected. Taking their place, also at the front. Anyway, now that all the special guests have arrived, the service will be ready to start. Hosted by Really 007. And I believe some of their children will be reading some of the lessons. I shall now leave you to enjoy this special event. Live from the historic... St. Cyril's Monastery, this is nine lessons and carols to form His Majesty's Secret Carol Service.
Do you know how spy heroes are grown? Ian Fleming created something special in 1953. A sophisticated hero that made his readers dream. James Bond was his name and spying was his game. After ten adventures on the page, he had achieved literary fame. His missions were so exciting, they had to be seen to be believed. And so they decided to bring 007 to the big screen. Bond made his heroic debut on cinema screens in 1962. He explored Jamaica, defeating Dr. No and a dragon too. The world fell in love with the actor Sean Connery. Bond was a worldwide sensation thanks to him, Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Broccoli. Audiences loved it, they gasped and adored. Crowds gathered, demanding more and more. From Russia with love and Goldfinger came next. Villains, gadgets, cars and danger held audiences' breath. Bond went underwater, up volcanoes in Japan. He faced off against Blofeld and by 1967 everyone was a fan. Men and women loved the escapism. Children loved the adventure. The formula had been struck and James Bond had become a legend. That legend had passed down the generations and become a family event. I'll never forget my first Bond and wanting to watch it over and over again. My dad introduced me to James Bond and he's loved it since a boy. At six years old... I'm now a fan and it brings so much joy. My grandparents saw them at the cinema. My dad on VHS. Now I sit on his knee, watch DVDs and it's the best. James Bond is a hero, performs amazing feats, overcoming the odds and putting us on the edge of our seats.
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with Fleming, and the Word was Fleming. Like the Nativity story, the names and events had become established and adored in the minds of all people through the books, and now the cinematic adventures. But when fans were invited to adore him by the producers, it was not Sean Connery they needed to fix their eyes on. It was the character of James Bond himself. The adventures of 007 had become a worldwide phenomenon. Being 007 had also put the weight of the world on Sean Connery's shoulders. After five films, Sean chose not to carry on. And we found ourselves at a junction, which would eventually define one of the franchise's strong points. James Bond doesn't have to be played by one actor. The search was on, and both Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton came close to taking over the part. But, before they eventually got their turn, destiny brought George Lazenby to our screens as 007 in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Like being born in a stable, but becoming the King of Kings, the world loves an underdog story. With very little acting and big screen experience, George was an unknown to audiences and a huge underdog. And the story of Bond wasn't just for one nation, but for all, apart from maybe Russia. Born in Australia, Lazenby demonstrated and embodied the idea that everyone's favourite secret agent didn't just belong to Great Britain. Though On Her Majesty's Secret Service was George's only outing as Bond, it has become an increasingly beloved entry into the series, with new waves of appreciation rising every year that passes by. George even brought a claim to the role in new ways, becoming the only 007 actor to receive a Golden Globe nomination. We love and cherish the nativity story, but at Christmas time there is also some space for other stories and fairy tales. In On a Majesty's Secret Service, we see action and adventure on a grand scale, with locations and set pieces, but also romantic themes, tragedy and emotion. Like It's a Wonderful Life, a new Christmas classic was born. And it must be said that while Sean never managed a snow scene, George became the first Bond to sprinkle snowy Arctic conditions on the franchise, with skiing, tobogganing, ice skating, and Christmas trees. Though the crew behind George stayed much the same, with familiar faces in Peter Hunt and John Barry, On a Majesty's Secret Service took an enormous leap for Bond and its adoring audience, and it proved that the character of James Bond is what is most important and can be portrayed by different actors. It also reassured fans that James Bond would continue to exist even when the actors grew too old. Though Fleming's stories aren't over 2,000 years old, the books and now film franchise 
have exceeded 60 years. Thanks to George Lazenby and on Her Majesty's Secret Service, James Bond was now able to survive the decades and continue reaching new generations by holding true to the central message, but also by continual reinvention and a commitment to entertaining audiences with the things that make 007 bring a smile to our face. The following reading from the Fleming is taken from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I do not want to marry, not anyone. Good morning, everyone. James Bond has long been a symbol for single-minded and single men across the world. His way with women was effortless and lacking in effort. Women fell into his arms and fell out of his arms, dead. He travelled the world, from Iceland to Isthmus, San Monique to San Francisco, and Bangkok to Baja, 
but it wasn't always thus. He grew up in difficult circumstances, alone and isolated in Scotland after the death of his parents, with nothing but a groundskeeper and a huge mansion to keep him company. This, of course, changed when he found a second family. Some guy we don't really know much about acting as his stepfather and that most loving of stepbrothers, Ernst Stavro Blofeld. Fast forward a decade and maybe rewind a few decades and you have James working as a double O agent for Her Majesty's Government. The job didn't lend itself to long-term relationships. Poor Sylvia Trench was his first situationship whilst he was playing away from home. And Bond would continue the theme of being called in to report to M, but allowing himself a few more minutes to finish his business and even find time to brush up on a little Danish. He did come close a few times to love. He was hoping to be betrothed to the enchanting Aki, but she's dead. His eventual bride, Kissy, may have had a fish like a pig, but they had some honeymoon together in Japan. So many of his potential girlfriends came to a sticky end. Solange, Corinne Dufour, Andrea Anders, and Mrs. Fakesh. He had a thing for sisters. First he got both Mastersons killed, but it was the Carver sisters that made a bigger impact on James. First there was Rosie, but he wasn't a fan of her whining and chased her off to her death. Then there was Paris from New York, who he met again in Berlin. James is still kicking himself at letting her sacrifice herself. But she did get one final romantic evening with him. One night in Paris indeed. But James did marry. How, you might ask, when he enjoyed the bachelor lifestyle? Well, a dad offered him a million quid. To be honest, we'd probably all go, at least for a date, for less. But James did the honourable thing and got engaged within a few weeks. Tracy was in a difficult place when they first met, before the bet. The romantic beachside setting was anything but. Thankfully, he saved her from the waves and the slow munching punches of her dad's henchmen. After they were reunited at the casino, his heart went out to her. She was taking so many risks, she clearly didn't care what happened to herself. Bond didn't get to win her money back, but he did manage to check her out in one of those Marks and Spencers type toweling robes. The fact was that she had left before he woke up, and that kind of turned him on. When they were reunited, it was clear she was worth investing in. They heard this lovely tune by Louis Armstrong that became their song. He loved it so much that he even promised himself that if he did settle down with another woman, he would allow her to play it to their child in his car after he'd perished. Bond was at a low ebb again before long and found himself pondering on his life choices after womanising many other babes on a mountain retreat in Switzerland. Whilst impersonating a gay college of arms rep, being woken up and slapped again by an absolute munter, and then chased down the ski slopes by some chaps in high-vis vests. He buried his head in his hands at an ice rink, feeling stupid for his plight and for cheating on Tracy with some absolute stunners. I mean, we're talking a slew of tens from all over the world. Yeah, real regret. 
But there she was, waiting like an angel sent to save him. And wasn't she impressive? She drove him around the snowy village, diverting into a race between some stock cars and knocking over some pedestrians. Bond didn't know what was happening, but he was loving it. She then drove through the blizzard until the snow blocked their path. There was no room at the inn, but there was the coziest of stables. The oxen watched on, the cattle were lowing, as they made love with all the clothes on, plus gloves, blankets, and hay for extra protection. I mean, warmth. Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. The next reading from the Fleming is also taken from on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Bond suddenly thought, hell, I'll never find another girl like this one. She's got everything I've ever looked for in a woman. She's beautiful, in bed and out. She's adventurous, brave, resourceful. She's exciting always. She seems to love me. She'd let me go on with my life. She's a lone girl, not cluttered up with friends, relations, belongings. Above all, she needs me. It'll be someone for me to look after too. I'm fed up with all these untidy casual affairs that leave me with a bad conscience. I wouldn't mind having children. I've got no social background into which she would or wouldn't fit. We're two of a pair, really. Why not make it for always? Bond found his voice saying those words that he had never said in his life before, never expected to say. Tracy, I love you. Will you marry me? She turned very pale. She looked at him wonderingly. Her lips trembled. You mean that? Yes, I mean it. With all my heart. Well, thankfully, Tracy did say yes, and they made their way home. Well, she was knocked out in a, an avalanche and taken by those stewards. James loved her so much, but thought he'd nip back to London to mope about a bit before asking his boss if he could go back and rescue her. And as luck would have it, her dad was up for helping, and a group of them went back to the top of the mountain to save young Tracy. Bond saw lots of men trying to kill him when he arrived, but he couldn't quite find his fiancée. He heard that his father-in-law gave her a good hiding and put her in the helicopter. He was then distracted by someone purporting to be his stepbrother, but the two of them had an exciting bobsleigh chase. Bond was soon on his own again, but not for long. Meeting him in the snow was another angel sent to rescue him, a huge soppy St Bernard. James and Tracy quickly organised the wedding. He was in such a rush that he even forgot to invite his best mate, Felix Leiter. There were some legends there, like the old man who gave him those gadgets in most of his missions, and that office flirt who he loved to spend time with before getting on the plane. This lady seemed upset that Bond was getting married. Bond wanted to cheer her up, so threw her the bouquet. It seemed to work, and she waved them off. Everything was so perfect. The two of them, alone at last. Bond briefly stopped to have a waz at the side of the road. This would be the biggest regret of his life. His wife had been murdered on his wedding day. A drive-by with two passengers that looked like that munter and his stepbrother's impersonator. He thought that they had all the time in the world, but they had barely managed a day as a married couple. 
James was devastated and struggled to return to work. Thankfully, his boss told him to pull himself together and have a weekend in Amsterdam and then a lad's holiday in Vegas with his stepbrother to take his mind off things. Despite Moneypenny goading him by asking for an engagement ring, he had a ball and he even met someone he could see himself ending up with. But, yet again, his heart would be broken by her untimely death. He still lay awake at night, contemplating on a life with plenty of tools. Bond has come close to finding love again. But all the women ended up betraying him like Electra, Miranda and Vesper. Or he betrayed them, like Madeline, on at least three occasions. But nothing could ever match Mrs Tracy Bond. Truly a woman to die for. Even though he ended up dying for Madeline, or at least that was part of the reason. Who knows? Maybe Bond will marry again. Maybe Bond will live again. One thing we do know is that James is a real catch and always has plenty of options. Broken wings mend. One day James will fly again. I promise.
Roger Moore was the perfect James Bond of the era. While still being Bond, he's the quintessential permatand 70s hunk and brought a charm, wit and elegance to the role that suited the glamorous and adventurous spirit of the 1970s and 1980s. He was not afraid to inject some humour and self-awareness into his portrayal. He faced some of the most memorable villains and henchmen in the franchise, such as Jaws, Scaramanga and Max Zorin. He also had some of the most iconic gadgets and cars. Who would forget the Lotus that could turn into a submarine? He always had a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face. People mocked when James Bond went to space, but Moonraker features one of the most impressive aerial stunts ever filmed. Drax is the classic villain with an old-fashioned scheme to annihilate the population and start anew with his bimbo army. Kareem being chased by dogs in the forest remains one of the most distressing scenes in the series. Ken Adams' production design is stunning. John Barry's music is enchanting, much like Roger Moore's flares. He was a gentleman spy who could handle any situation with style and grace, whether it was skiing down a mountain, escaping from a crocodile farm, or going into space. Appearing in seven films over 12 years, he left a lasting impression on generations of fans, including me!
The reading today is from the Gospel of John. Glenn. At that time, the Eon Emperor Cubby Broccoli decreed that a census should be taken throughout the cinematic empire. This was the first census taken since Roger Moore had become Bond in 1973. Many actors returned Cubby's calls to register their interest. Piers Brosnan, who was favoured for the role of Bond, had to return to Remington Steel due to contract issues. And so Timothy Dalton became the fourth James Bond. For the Fleming followers, this was the coming of their own Messiah. The Bond that they had read about in the ancient scriptures, namely the Casino Royale and Moonraker novels. This was the light shining in their darkness, returning to save the Flemingites from the perceived years of Bond exile that were the 70s and 80s. There would be no more J.W. Pepper, no more Bond attempting re-entry in space, and no more Tarzan swings. It was time for Fleming's Bond. It was time for serious Bond. Well, save for cello case rides and plastic swordfishes. Dalton took it back to basics. He would claim that there was nothing beautiful about his appearance, that there was nothing to attract him to us. And while scholars strictly disagree with this, they cite his smouldering turn in Gibraltar or his wet look on the wave crest of evidence of both men and women alike going weak at the knees. There is an acknowledgement that he was a different Bond. He was a spy, someone who could mould into the background, Someone who didn't have the swagger of Connery or the panache of Moore. He was despised and rejected. The only Bond to be called the back end of a horse by his own love interest. A Bond who didn't want the limelight and was uncomfortable in interviews. A Bond who saw a downturn at the box office, which nearly saw the end of the franchise. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief at the suffering of his friend Felix Leiter and the loss of Della. He was a reluctant hero who would thank his boss for firing him, one who would not report to Istanbul if it meant avenging the death of his friend. The sign of his arrival would not be a star over the town of Bethlehem, but a winking fish in Isthmus City. Yes, the Flemingites would find him riding a donkey in the Middle East, but not through the streets of Jerusalem, but the mountains of Afghanistan with the Mujahideen defending their territory against Brad Whitaker and General Koskoff. He was also greeted by wise men, namely Saunders, Freddie Gray and Cameron Shaw, and he also received gifts, such as ghetto blasters, dentonite toothpaste and exploding teddy bears. His associated foods were less loaves and fishes and more strawberry jam and foie gras, which was quite excellent. He had his own disciples, such as a love-struck Moneypenny, Uncle Q, and even fishermen like Sharky. Let's go fishing! But he also had his own Judas in Ed Killifer. Pam and Lupe were his Mary and Martha, both vying for his ultimate attention. He turned Fran Sanchez into a doubting Thomas, someone who wouldn't trust anyone around him, and someone who wasn't happy until he saw the scars of the impaled Colonel Heller. General Pushkin was his very own Lazarus, miraculously recovering after being announced dead. And it wasn't so much a beheading of John the Baptist, but the exploding head of Milton Crest. 
The small Weasley tax collector who crossed paths with Fleming's Messiah did not go by the name of Zacchaeus, but by Truman Lodge, who was less interested in giving his money to the poor and more interested in grieving another $80 million write-off. His only ascension was a 2,000-metre-high Hercules cargo plane fight with Necros. He had no personal message from the angel Gabriel Fazetti, and there was room at the inn or Hotel de Presidente. And yet amongst all the similarities and differences, the main theme of any hero remains. He lived out his convictions. He stuck to his principles. If this bond was to quit, it was because there was a higher cause, not because he was depressed. If this bond was to defy his orders, it's because he truly believed that that was the best thing to do for the job. And despite, despite how brief their time was, despite how divisive they were amongst their followers, or how misunderstood they were by the critics, they leave a lasting legacy. Your father's legacy. And it is only years later that they are truly appreciated for the message that they brought and the miracles they performed. Timothy Dalton was a Bond ahead of his time. And since then, others have come and gone, staking their claim as the first Bond who bleeds or shows vulnerability. And yet all they do is point to the original, chain-smoking, quiff-wearing, stunt-performing, rage-dispensing James Bond, Timothy Dalton, Fleming's Messiah. This is the word of the Fleming. Thanks be to Ian.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Were you expecting somebody else? Well, actually, Pierce, we weren't. After a five-year hiatus due to a rights issue, Pierce Brosnan was announced as the new James Bond in 1994. Brosnan had been a contender for the role since the late 1980s, but contractual obligations for his TV series Remington Steel prevented him from taking it. In fact, John Glenn had cast him in The Living Daylights. Much like Roger Moore, Brosnan's career appeared to be almost a training ground, preparing him for the role of James Bond. For many, he was born to play this role. The Golden Eye teaser trailer, goodness me, not only is this one of the best trailers for a Bond film, but it's possibly the best example of how to market a film without actually giving everything away. The specially filmed introduction featuring Pierce Brosnan breaking the fourth wall, cutting to frenetic action and glamorous locations, revealing little or no plot. It really should be a template for future trailers. Computers, satellites, women with agency, Golden Eye brought James Bond firmly into the 21st century. With a post-Soviet state, it allowed the filmmakers to have one foot in the past as well as the present. As the trailer states, it's a new world with new enemies and new threats. Grounded, brutal and brilliantly choreographed, Martin Campbell upped the action. A stunning opening stunt harking back to the living daylights. This had me hooked from the off. Before you could catch your breath or hit double figures re-watching GoldenEye on VHS, the next instalment was announced. Actors, writers... A hint of plot and a new director were wheeled out at press conferences. There was a confidence from all involved. The resurrection was complete. James Bond was back. Tomorrow Never Dies was released just two years after GoldenEye. The rushed production, and particularly the fact that they started filming before the script was complete, does impact on the final film, but we had a new Bond adventure, and who could complain? The lack of gadgets and GoldenEye was addressed. The BMW certainly gets put to good use. Who'd have thought a multi-storey car park in Germany could be so exciting? Another two years later, Babs is really cooking now. We get something with a slightly different flavour. Trying to add layers to the franchise, we get a Bond film with complex characters. M in danger, MI6 being uprooted, and references to Bond's childhood. No, not Skyfall. Sorry, cheap shot. With an unusual choice of director and even more unlikely casting, for some anyway, the World Is Not Enough brings much more to Brosnan's tenure, allowing him to add depth to his character and push himself and Bond out of their comfort zone. While these three films are very different, they remain familiar and reassuring. I think it's fair to say that Die Another Day is the runt of the litter, a film that deserves the criticism aimed at it, but should get more credit. 
a chat GPT adaptation of Ian Fleming's Moonraker. It has a lot going for it. A strong opening and title sequence, a great score, solid action, an interesting villain, and Brosnan giving it all. There's a lot that doesn't work. The absolutely atrocious dialogue, the odd stylistic flourishes. I could go on, but look out for the review in 2024. For me, this was a fantastic period to be a Bond fan. Regular films, computer games, merchandise that didn't cost the earth. I think it's fair to say, regardless of your opinion of Brosnan and the films, they were always exciting and fun. He was the best Bond for that era, and he served the series well, even when he didn't return that courtesy. To paraphrase Greg Lake, we get the James Bond we deserve, and I must have been a very good boy. Merry Christmas. Our seventh reading focuses on the reboot. Christmas can be bittersweet for some, and this was perhaps a bittersweet period for fans. Pierce Brosnan's tenure as James Bond came to a sad end when he became the first actor to have his contract as 007 cut short. The commercial success of Die Another Day wasn't enough to outshine the unpopular artistic and writing decisions made in his last adventure. This brought the longest hiatus since Brosnan took over from Dalton, 
But in the period of reassessment came the decision to hit the reset button on the franchise. After 19 films, the franchise had to reconfigure its approach for the first time. It was back to the drawing board, and despite Quentin Tarantino and Brosnan himself having their own visions of how the franchise could reclaim its position as the lead spy movie franchise, a big decision was made to recast the much-loved action hero. Allow, if you will, the analogy of Christmas abroad. The prospect of doing things differently and shaking up the formula. Well, this period was when the producers Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson planned their Christmas away from home. They maintained their desire to cast a lesser-known actor for the role when they chose Daniel Craig as the new 007. Craig's casting caused a stir. This wasn't the Christmas fans were used to. He didn't have the conventional dark and handsome looks audiences had come to expect. Instead, he was more blonde and rugged-looking. His press release involved him arriving on a River Thames speedboat, but the decision to wear a life vest brought more undue criticism, and the media found themselves wondering if Craig could really handle the role. Can Christmas really work if the expectations are shifted? However, when they finally launched Casino Royale and released it in 2006, any fans who'd once felt bitter about the direction of Die Another Day were granted something sweet. Martin Campbell returned to reboot the series like he had with Goldeneye. Chris Cornell rocked out a bombastic theme song. Daniel Craig gave Bond a hard edge, and as he gradually learned to become a secret agent and earned the Bond theme, new life had been pumped into the franchise's blood. Rather like discovering that Christmas is not about the location, but people sharing an important occasion together. Casino Royale was an outright success, and Bond was back with a bang. But could this sweet taste last? Two years later, they released an immediate sequel called Quantum of Solace that brought more of a salty taste to the palate. It was gritty and fast, but due to a writer's strike, it was not as airtight as its predecessor. We enjoyed Christmas Abroad last year, but did we have to do it again? We learned our lessons. Could we not have now returned to more of what we love? Well, who wants to spend Christmas in a tropical climate anyway? Well, what came next became an immediate classic. As the stars aligned and the London Olympics preceded the next James Bond adventure, there was a sense of patriotic anticipation and pride as Christmas looked to be coming home. In 2012, Daniel Craig took on his third 007 adventure, Skyfall. Audiences piled in to see a more classic Bond adventure. This mission came at just the right time. Rather like Christmases abroad can be exciting and novel, you can't beat a traditional Christmas that has all the long-standing ingredients of home. Skyfall was much the same. Though it did away with stockings and preferred a certain type of shot to a gun barrel, it featured a by-the-numbers, Bassey-inspired Bond theme by Adele. 
just like a Leona Lewis pastiche Christmas song inspired by Mariah. It invited more people in, and like your uncles and aunties joining your grandparents for the full family Christmas dinner, this time Money Penny and Q were welcome back, and they were not the butt of jokes. And just like an excited child finds presents under the tree or a small bell, Skyfall permitted a small radio receiver as the first gadget of the Craig era. Like Christmas jumpers at an office Christmas party, Bond donned a tuxedo at a casino on foreign territory with a Bond theme to back him up. And, harking back to the redemption stories of Christmases old, we were allowed a clear pantomime villain who needed sorting out in the form of Raoul Silver, played by Javier Bardem. Perhaps most importantly, however, Christmas cheer was personified, not by a baby being born in a stable or Father Christmas flying a sleigh, but by a James Bond who was more up for doing his job. And he did it driving an Aston Martin as a throwback to a Bond adventure from 1964 that hadn't happened yet. Audiences loved it and came in the droves. They invited friends and family for repeat viewing and it became a smash hit. The traditions of James Bond had won out and proved that the world loved the world of James Bond just as it was. And while a lot of Christmases end with hugs and kisses under the mistletoe, Skyfall ended in a traditional M's office, with Bond saying he would return with pleasure.
This lesson is entitled A Stepbrother and a Daughter. Christmas is a time for family. We all enjoy spending time with our loved ones and relatives, opening presents around the tree, sharing the roast turkey and all the trimmings, perhaps catching up with those we haven't seen for a long, long time. So why shouldn't the same apply for James Bond? Shouldn't our favourite cinematic spy be entitled to family and at least the opportunity to have a festive celebration with those he holds most dear? If we turn to the film of Spectre in our 007 canon, we learn that following the death of his parents, James is taken in by a climbing and skiing instructor called Hans Oberhauser. We're not told whether Hans has a wife or partner. The author, director, chooses not to provide us with that information. But we are told that Hans has a son, Franz. Jealous of Hans' relationship with, and affection for, James, Franz does what any grumpy and jealous teenager would do. He murders his father in an avalanche, faking his own death in the process, and becomes the mastermind behind the terrorist organisation known in the Bond world, and the title of this film, as Spectre. Franz also changes his name to Ernst Stavro Blofeld. What can we learn from the fact that James Bond, the super spy, is revealed to have had a step or adoptive father, and, more pertinently, a step or adopted brother, who just so happens to create the very terrorist organisation which Bond is consistently trying to thwart? Well, we learn that the writers and creators of these stories have run out of ideas. They've jumped the shark. They've come up with a storyline so stupid it has no business in a Bond film, or any film for that matter. And we won't go on to what happens to Oberhauser, Blofeld, Inspector and No Time to Die. Also in these two films, Bond meets the daughter of Mr White, a villain from the Quantum and, apparently, Spectre worlds. She is Madeline Swan. We see, or rather we are meant to see, James and Madeline falling for each other. The writers and director choose not to show this effectively. This relationship is explored further in No Time to Die, with a three and a half hour pre-title sequence, exploring an incident in Madeline's childhood, then Bond believing Madeline has betrayed him and ditching her, having supposedly just fallen in love with her, although he preferred Vesper. For the sake of time and my own sanity this Christmas time, I won't go into everything, but it transpires that Madeline was pregnant when Bond ditched her, but he rekindles the romance before finding out Madeline has borne his child, a daughter, Mathilde. What can we learn from this? The lesson I, I draw from this is that the creators had way too many ideas for Daniel Craig's last film and decided to just bung them all in. So, within the space of two films, we discover Bond has a stepbrother, who just so happens to be a, or the, megavillain of the whole film series, and a daughter, who just so happens to be the granddaughter of another villain from the recent movies. What can we learn from Bond suddenly having relatives? Isn't he entitled to dream of a Christmas, spent round the tree with his adoptive father Hans, adopted brother Franz, or Ernst, his father-in-law, Mr., his life partner Madeline, and his daughter Mathilde. Well, we can appreciate those around us. Unless, then, they try to kill us, kill themselves, run away, and or result in us wanting to kill our own self. Friends, this Christmas time, 
I implore you to cherish your family and friends, and James Bond. But maybe don't spend too much time thinking about Bond's supposed relatives and the associated storylines, as they are, subjectively and objectively speaking, worth a whole pile of coal in the stockings of those responsible. God bless you all this Yuletide.
Today, on this most special and sacred of occasions, we are scheduled to commemorate and indeed celebrate the life and death, can't believe I'm saying that, of James Bond. However, this won't all be maudlin gulps in the rearview mirror of cinema, no matter how much I'm desperate for the mere sight of a safari suit or diving hat with a dead seabird on the top. No, this will be an occasion of the more proactive variety, an occasion that will be run through by the keen blade of justice, an occasion that will not only examine James Bond's passing, but establish those responsible. How can we do this, you might ask? Well, it involves a little bit of GCSE, history, jiggery-pokery, and imagination. So I implore you to imagine we're now in Norman, England, when the church was given legal powers to try their very own under God's own roof, ruling over moral crimes. We, of course, are in attendance of the very church of 007, and the crime in question is the murder of James Bond. And so arise the accused, stand on your pews if you have to, and let the congregation gaze upon you and make up their own minds. And as the Church of 007's self-appointed chief prosecutor, I'll show unequivocally, without doubt, nor quiver, nor query, that the murderers of James Bond will be brought to account. So arise Purvis, arise Wade, arise G. Wilson, arise Broccoli, and arise you, Craig. This is your judgment day, your day of reckoning, your time to take your crimes on the chin and beg this congregation for forgiveness or mercy. Now, in properly addressing the root cause of James Bond's murder, this prosecutor feels it pertinent to look at the crime in three areas. Namely, on paper behind the camera, and in front of the camera. With that in mind, I call you, Purvis and Wade, into the witness box. But considering we don't have one here in the Church of 007, you can just stand over there by that stack of hymn books. Yes, yes, hurry up, hurry up. Now, Messrs. Purvis and Wade, you don't have to answer these questions, but your silence will speak volumes. Were you, Purvis and Wade... Surprised to find you were still in with a job after the universal damnation of Die Another Day? This being the sole James Bond film you wrote by yourselves? Would it be a fair assumption that you had to keep pushing away from the campy fun and closer to more supposedly grounded and grittier stories? Well, what could be darker and more grown up than the death of the series' very own protagonist? Another line of thought here, gentlemen... Were you so enamoured and thrilled by the apparent endless checks you were receiving to keep this franchise going? No need to worry about this writer's strike, boys. We've got your backs covered. Would you say this gave you somewhat of a writerly complacency, do you feel? The kind of we-can-do-what-we-want invincibility. You can see where I'm going here. I need to say no more. Lastly, gentlemen, would you say you were somewhat surprised to find out that, despite continually getting the job of writing James Bond movies, you were finding other people added into the writing pot? That your influence was ever diluted? And would it be fair to say that killing James Bond might be a churlish way of getting back at the franchise you had in the palm of your hands, only to see it shared? Silence. It does speak volumes. Three possible motives 
right there. Now let's move on to Broccoli and Wilson. Yes, please do come up and join the rest of the accused. Yes, yes, they'll scoot up, yes. Producers with a platinum project. Is that a fair assessment? A golden goose that keeps on pumping out the most priceless of Fabergé eggs. I put it to you that complacency comes with a property so inherently successful. It already comes with a fan base you don't really need to think about. You know it's there, and those poor schmucks will go and see a James Bond movie several times regardless. You only need to have a brief glance at the pricing structure on the official 007 store to see how those in charge of James Bond, in a commercial sense, are very happy to milk the cow until its udders are cracked and brittle. £125 for a Skyfall scarf indeed. A no-time-to-die army sweater for £345. Oh, no problem. James Bond tactical leather boots by Bogner, £600. Oh, please. No amount of all of our brown is going to change the fact that those in charge of James Bond are happy to use the audience that was in place years before. So why now not use them again? You know you can wait years between movies now. You've done it before. And as much as it confuses me, credit where it is due. These movies are phenomenally successful. There is no argument there. But your audience is a plaything. There for the taking. And you've been very happy to toy with them, haven't you? So when it comes to the murder of James Bond, one must look to who could pull off such a thing. Yes, Purvis and Wade pulled the trigger on their typewriters, but someone must have called in the hit. So who decided it was time for James Bond to die? It can only be one of two parties. The two parties with the most amount of power in the project. That would be the producers and the star. And this is where I feel a modicum of pity for you, producers, for it is this court's belief that you were complicit in the murder thanks entirely to infatuation. You were in love with Daniel Craig, obsessed with him to a point of frank absurdity. You never showed Pierce Brosnan the same kind of deference, and in doing so, you only dug your hole deeper, because before long, your love didn't want to play any more. The object of your affection wanted out, and you had to keep giving him money to stay, and producer roles. And before long, even that wasn't enough, and to keep your love in your sight, you had to go along with that one final wish. Which leads us on to the final member of the accused, the star, Mr. James Bond himself. Mr. Craig, please join us. Yes, you can perch on that end pew if you like. Yes, we all know how much you put your body through for our entertainment. The man who famously stated many times over that he hated playing James Bond, that he'd slash his wrists before playing him again. But what would bring a change of heart if he could go one further than any other? The only reason he would come back to playing this character that had made him so fabulously wealthy was if he could kill him. None of the other James Bond actors had been given this amount of power behind the camera, and now was the time to really wield it, to make James Bond yours forever, and nobody else's, to take away that which meant so much. Because there was a career to think about, wasn't there? A world where you could throw off the shackles and do painful vodka commercials and do acting roles in a post-Bond world. But wouldn't all that be easier if you had an Oscar in your back pocket. 
Wouldn't it make you the hottest acting property on the planet? The only actor to win an Oscar as James Bond. And the best way to try to get an acting Oscar is through narrative, pain and melodrama. And the easiest way to find those things is through a great big sacrificial death. This was all a ruse, wasn't it? A plan to kill James Bond and rise from his ashes stronger than ever, having used the franchise that made you until it was nothing but a charred husk of cherished memories. Because thanks to you, accused, that's all we have now. Rose-tinted shards of Sunday afternoons in front of the television, the whole family there, and now it's all gone. For what? What did this achieve? Nothing. What remains is a split fan base, a production team in self-proclaimed mourning and stasis, and, Lord, I can barely say it, a reality TV show. So not only was James Bond's death a self-serving murder, it was pointless too. And I think today we've shown cogent motive and reason for the murder. For you, the congregation, the culprits are unmasked, and the responsibility shared. Shame on you all. Guilty. Guilty. I would add, however, a final word. Forgiveness, I believe, is at hand. You see, James Bond isn't dead. No matter what you five did, how much you turned him into a walking wet wipe, he'll be back, you'll see it, and there really will be no time to die this time. And if you achieve collective redemption in his resurrection, then I implore you to reach for it with both hands. Because, as we all know, and we've all come to rely upon, James Bond will return. Amen. <laughs>
Times, His Majesty's Secret Service, and we thank you for joining us in this celebration of the James Bond series. If you've been affected by any of the views shared today, we encourage you to contact your nearest friend or family member and discuss the issues raised. As the nine lessons and carols settle amongst the congregation, may I wish all those listening a happy Christmas and a wonderful new year, where we can look forward to the good news of a new arrival in the film series and a bright future ahead. Merry Christmas. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.